Hey, welcome to The Screenwriting Life. I'm Meg LaFove. And I'm Lorianne McKenna. We are professional screenwriters. We've worked together as a team and separately. We've worked on studio and indie films, live action and animation, from my work on Inside Out and Captain Marvel. To my work in Pixar's story department on Up, Brave, and Inside Out. We are here to share our insights on the craft of screenwriting and also the life. How to not only survive the ups and downs, but thrive. We want to help you become the best screenwriter you can be and to reassure you that you are not alone on this journey. Hey guys, welcome back to The Screenwriting Life. Uh, Today we're talking to Oscar-winning VFX veteran Ben Grossman, who has worked on films like Shutter Island, the live-action Jungle Book, and Lion King films, Star Trek Into the Darkness, and Hugo, for which he won the Oscar for Best Visual Effects. In 2014, he co-founded the production company Magnopus, which is committed to uniting physical and digital worlds with extraordinary experiences and metaversal storytelling. If that Mm -hmm. idea is confusing to you, don't worry. It's confusing to me, too. And luckily, Ben can translate because I don't even know if what I said is right. Ben, you can tell us. (laughs) So uh, thanks for being here. Thanks for being here. Welcome. Oh, I'm so glad to be here. This is very exciting. I'm happy to join you all on on my favorite... uh, podcasts only murders in the edit suite because i think that (laughs) that's where visual effects artists and writers usually meet each other in the filmmaking process is on the cutting room floor Uh and so uh being uh here with you is a is an honor well we're gonna do our interview with ben in just a minute with you in just a minute but before we do ben has agreed to be in our weekly segment adventures in screenwriting where we talk about Mm -hmm. our week so we'll let lorian go first lorian how was your week well Uh, In the interest of uh, telling the truth and uh, being vulnerable and what we talk about on the show a lot, um, I had a very challenging week with very disappointing news. And honestly, I'm struggling. Uh, You know, we talk on the show about how important it is not to quit, to hold on to hope, to keep writing no matter what. And um, today, the lack of stability and the volatility of being a writer is overwhelming. And uh, I'm really trying to focus on what I can do and what I have control over. And uh, it's hard being, you know, I'm not 27. I have a kid with high stakes medical needs. I need my medical insurance. Um, And the industry seems to be having massive growing pains right now. And I don't know what it's gonna turn into. So it's, uh, I'm thinking a lot about my future which has to do with my ego and my past. And it's really complicated. And I feel uh, a little lost right now, honestly. And I, we talk on the show too, of how do you deal with success and how do you deal with failure? And all I can do right now is just feel my feelings and tell the audience my truth. Uh, Cause I know I'm not alone in this. Uh, and I really wish I could show up and be like, it's okay. And it's I'm going to keep writing when really I just want to go read my sci-fi fantasy book and eat chips in bed. Um, but instead, I'm here telling the truth. And so that is, yeah. I'm here. Yeah, You're here telling am... the truth and, and asking about the future. And we just happen to have someone today on the show who is going to talk about the future, perfect. which I think is kind of perfect. Solve all my problems, emotional, physical, <laughs> career, do it. I'm go. not going to solve Let's any of your problems. I'm just going to complete, <laughs> I'm going to create completely new ones so that you can forget <laughs> about the old ones. And if you don't remember that they're problems, they're not problems. Oh, I love that. I love that. Yeah. Ben, how was your week? My week was good. I didn't win anything. Uh, in terms of all the numerous battles that you're fighting, but somebody sent me a great meme that was like, it's, it was a Viking warrior head and it said, pick your battles at the top. And then it said, 
that's too many battles. Put some battles back. That's still too <laughs> many battles. <laughs> and that's how I felt my week summed it up. I, I spoke to a lot of great students who are aspiring filmmakers at Chapman University. We had a great time. I swore them all to secrecy and told them they weren't allowed to post anything on, uh, on social media. So I was able to be very honest and candid about their heroes. Uh, I attended a very large and long conference call about unifying uh, EV charging stations for cars around the nation, which I'm not sure how I ended up in that phone call, but I have a hard time saying <laughs> it with conference calls. And um, had a couple of meetings uh, to, with a production team. We're trying to pitch some really big ideas to a very big studio that is doing a really good job of dragging their feet. And then we're getting closer and closer to the day where we hope that they will one day greenlight actually investing some money. So we had uh, conference calls number 73, 74, and 75 where they came back with, you know, question number 247 and 232, which were a lot like questions number seven and 14. Oh my God, it's just like writing. It's exactly. Yeah, mm -hmm. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And uh, then other than that, I, 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 I we ended the week uh, last weekend on, on a high note. I went to see Nine Inch Nails play at a local state park, which was awesome. Great show. And, um, and I had a good meeting with a team of people who are, trying to put together an in-person exhibition about uh, the consequences of COVID-19 and not being prepared for the pandemic. And we helped try to tackle some experiential creative problems in that traveling exhibit that is going to Qatar. So that's my suitcase full of random activities last week. So it was a pretty light week for you, sounds like. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm not even talking about all the meetings where I was sworn to secrecy on behalf of national security, of course, but uh, <laughs> those were all the meetings I had after lunch, yeah. Well, Ben is here because my son was in that group of Chapman students, Aiden, who some of you guys might remember, he came on the show one time and he just raved and raved and raved and said, you have got, your listeners have got to meet Ben. It's so important. He's amazing. And he just was blown away. Didn't tell me anything specific because now I understand why he was sworn to secrecy, but uh, he just raved. So thank you so much for being here. And my week, just quickly, because I really would rather be talking to Ben than talking about myself. I have so much writing due for Pixar, I, but it's kind of one of those moments in writing where I have so much to do so fast that I can't edit myself. I can't question myself. I can't spiral into an anxiety spiral of, oh my God, maybe this sucks. I just have to do it and send it to the director as fast as I can to get his notes to go back, to go back because of just the the production process we're in and there's some liberation in that there's liberation in don't think about it just don't overthink it just do it and I'm enjoying it oddly I I, I kind of like to be in this space which is probably why I overschedule myself um, at the same time because I'm a lunatic I'm also reading scripts because I leave on Thursday for Africa to go Whoa. to yes to go to a writer's lab in Johannesburg it takes two days to get there and two days to get back. And the lab is five days. And I got that. And I still have to write for Pixar, by the way, when I'm there. I have to, like, at night, write my pages. It's insane. I don't know what I'm doing. My husband literally says, just don't die of a heart attack. I'm like, I will not. I'm good. Um, but I'm really enjoying even just reading those scripts and getting ready for them, uh, my writers, because I love teaching. I love consulting and help. I'm a story junkie, people. I am addicted to trying to figure out a story and how to make it work and make it personal to the writer and entertaining. I just, I'm addicted to it. I love it so much. And then the last thing is Aiden's at Chapman. I don't know if he's going, we might have to cut this, but because he might kill me, but I think it's important for our audience and kind of 
dovetails into both what Ben does and what we're doing. He wrote this little film he has to shoot because they have shoot every week. And he loved it and he pitched it to me. And I was like, oh my God, I think that's awesome. It's a co conceptually crazy and so awesome because it's so out there. And he goes to shoot it. And the actors, of course, are just other film students. And the actors are refusing to do it because they're afraid they're going to look silly because they're not really actors. They're telling him it won't work. His DP didn't show up because she forgot she had class. One supporting <laughs> actor quit. And he has two hours to shoot it. It's due like tomorrow or he has to edit it tomorrow and sound design it and go. And I was like, dude, just swing for the fences. Do not back off. And I gave him some specific things. Like if they don't want to do this, then have them do this and just swing. And he goes, I'm okay. I'm just going to go out and fail. And I'm like, exactly. Right now, swing big, fail as spectacularly as you can. Because in that spectacular failure, there is honor. And that, that swing is with the people who make it in Hollywood. You've got to just try. It's a class. If you fail, you're going to learn so much by swinging. If you start pulling back and changing it because of all these naysayers, you're never going to know what you could have learned. Just swing big and fail. And he just went, ha, ha, ha. And I've never heard from him again. So I don't know what it's happening right now. But I just <laughs> He's tried. in jail. He's been arrested. <laughs> exactly. He's who trying knows? to find bail money right now. Yeah, like who knows what You're the doing. greatest mother ever. Ever. I am. I think I, I think I said something to that effect at the class, which was, uh, you know, because a lot of people were like, well, you know, we got to be really careful. We got to make sure we do all these things right. And we got to, you know, how do we do that? And how do we make sure we don't? And I was like, what are you talking about? Plan A should never work. Plan, if you didn't, if plan A worked, you played it too safe and you didn't aspire to do anything great. It should be pandemonium. It should be chaos. You should be uncomfortable. You should be freaked out and you should barely survive it and make it across the finish line uh, under protest. And only then will you know that you've probably aspired to do something great. Otherwise, you're just one of these other numbskulls running around TikToking their day and complaining about their Starbucks. Nobody gives a shit. And uh, and I think they were like, oh, okay, that seems reasonable. So I was oh like, my yeah, God. that's my Hollywood is a advice. series of controlled failures. That is literally what it all is. It's a series of an attempt to control failure as much as possible uh, until it makes it into the theater. It's so funny. Yeah. What you describe is literally what it can can sometimes feel like to work at Pixar or any big studio because you, you do get into that moment. Like where you're yeah. just like, well, I don't know. Here you go. Here you go. How about this? What about this? This is the craziest idea I've ever had. What about that? And you're, it is, it's controlled chaos and you're just swinging and swinging and swinging. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, otherwise it's run of the mill. Go ahead. Well, what you both are talking about makes me feel a lot better about the show that just got passed on because it was a huge swing. It's something in animation that hasn't been seen before. And I'm really proud of it. Uh, and I hope it finds a different home, but actually just makes me feel better. Like it was a huge swing. It was a spectacular risk. And everyone involved, as I know people involved in this project listen to the show, we should all be incredibly proud of ourselves for the effort we put in and for what we did. And it is, it pushes a lot of boundaries. It makes people really uncomfortable. And um, so I'm actually proud. So thank you both. Yes, that you should be. Really, you should be. Really helps. Uh, it does really help. Yeah, Lorraine, you have me. always you. been a groundbreaker. You. you are always out on the edge, asking people to look at things, asking people as an artist to consider things, breaking boundaries. 
that is, those are huge swings that it's not as easy. It just isn't. You have to find the right buyer who's ready to get on and take that swing with you. And you might still find that buyer. Let's not give up on that. That buyer could be out there. It just wasn't the one that you had, you, you were working with at the time. That's, and I know yeah. that I don't no, want to thank you. right, but that is the truth too. I would Let's also thank you in. both very much. Yeah. Just as somebody who kind of lives on the edge of technology and is mostly, you know, in things that haven't happened yet, that's kind of the world I live in. What I've really come to realize is that time is a thing we never really consider. A lot of people think about why and they think about what and they think about who and, and most of the world just focuses on how because that's what their brains can comprehend. But I started to realize that actually a lot of the most genius ideas and stories and all these other wonderful things that, that should or could happen, when you get a rejection, it's usually, in my experience, a matter of when. Because you're going to see your idea and your vision, and whether it's not yours specifically or it's just one like it in the future, and it was going to be a question of timing. And that is something that's really hard for everybody to kind of wrap their heads around because we feel like, I mean, that's what I'm going through right now with this studio, is that we're pitching this master vision of, you know, insanity. And they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, we agree with the why, we agree with the what, we agree with the how, we agree with the who, but none of us are ready for this, man. And and it really comes down to a matter of time. And and at least some of those people had the had the sensitivity to to acknowledge that because what may have happened to you was somebody just wasn't comfortable and they didn't know exactly why. And they said, no, but they didn't tell you that it was really just a matter of timing. So I don't know. Yeah. I have an That's unfortunate amazing. pattern of having a show not go. And then something else six months later, quite similarly goes. <laughs> so I'm like, should I just stop? No, the um, wheel's going to yeah. turn. It's going to align. It's going to align. You're on the but pulse. But yeah, you're totally right. Your timing, timing is a huge thing, and it's exciting to be the first, but it can also, yeah, it's it can also the, be uh, in your yeah. The early bird gets the worm, but the second mouse gets the cheese. I want to be the second mouse. I want the cheese. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just a couple of times. Let's be the second mouse. Yeah. Um, all right. So Ben, let's officially start our interview. Then already you've kind of blown my mind and I love it. Um, I, I think we always like to start with our guests to just talk about getting into the business because a lot of our listeners are emerging and they're beginning and they always mm -hmm. ask, and how, how did you break into the business? So let's just start with the easiest. Yeah. Uh, I grew up in Alaska, kind of log cabin in the woods, middle of nowhere sort of situation. And um I needed to pay for college. So I, my mom gave me a camera, an old camera. And so I tried to get a job as a photographer and eventually worked my way into photojournalism and then into videography and then editing. And then I was a weatherman on the evening news and television and Alaska has almost no people. So basically anyone can do any job. If you just say, sure, I'll do that job. They're like, great, here you go. Can you wear a tie? Check. Great. You're the weatherman. So uh, I did a bunch of that stuff for a while, and then I kind of ran out of things to do in Alaska, which I loved and enjoyed very much. But one one day it got really cold, and I was like, "I've had enough." And so I threw all the stuff in the, the trunk of my car and and started the car, and I didn't turn it off until I got to California. And I couldn't find parking in San Francisco, so I kept going to Los Angeles. And then when I got here, I I basically basically couch surfed for a while. Um, trying to find a job, trying to find enough money to get an apartment or anything like that. And I thought, I know how to run a camera. I know how to edit. I know how to like, you know, work in broadcasts or all stuff. It should be, you know, it's Hollywood. I should be able to find a job. 
And um, we don't have unions in Alaska, but everything that I kind of applied for in Los Angeles, they were like, what are you high? You just, what are you just like, you just fell off the dog sled and you think you're going to get a job in this town. Like you, you're, you got to join the union. You got to do all these things. And I was like, oh man, I don't have the patience for that. So I was working as a secretary receptionist, answering phones and routing calls. And, and I happened to be a temp at a talent agency. And this woman uh, said, you know, you're handy with the computers. You might consider this thing called visual effects. And I was like, yeah, I don't know much about it. She was like, nobody does. It's a black box. It's a mystery. Um, but I happen to know somebody and it's non-union. So give it a shot. And so, um, yeah, I ended up uh, cracking into the industry that way. I started at the very bottom in uh, rotoscoping. It was my job to paint out wires frame by frame on, uh, you know, Kung Fu movies and stuff like that. So that's how I got in the business. Oh, I, I love the tenacity of that story. And I love that this woman just happened to say that and happened to know and your life calibrated differently. I got very lucky because she said, hey, I know a talent agent who represents visual effects artists. Why don't you go talk to them? And, and I'm sure you probably all know the emotional journey of trying to get an agent. And I didn't know if agents were a thing that I needed. And, and so I went to this person and they were the, they were the nicest person, but he was like, you know, uh, a classic Hollywood agent. And he looked at me and he was just like, you know, he made this face with the eyebrows, like you're a very interesting person, but I couldn't possibly represent you. Nobody cares what you did in Alaska. You haven't done anything in Los Angeles. And this is at a time, you know, when we used the, the, um, you know, we used paper maps to navigate around town because there were no smartphones and stuff. So it was like old Hollywood ish. And, and he said, but I do like the way you formatted your resume and I like the way you compressed your demo reel and I like the graphics on your resume stuff and you made a web page. So how about I hire you to work in this, you know, do back office stuff for my, for my actual clients. And I said, okay, fine. But one day somebody's going to call you and they're going to say, I need a person who does X and you're not going to have anybody. And I want you to put me in for that job. And he's like, we'll talk about it. His name was Bob Coleman, fantastic person, super kind. And, and, and one day he didn't have somebody. And he said, I want you to take a chance on this kid who's doing my website. And that's how I got the, that's how I got the gig. I love it. And that's wow. a lot of hard work. And that's a lot of putting yourself out there, which is it's a lot of sleeping on couches and, and mm -hmm. um, staying skinny. <laughs> oh my goodness. Staying um, skinny. Can you explain just for our listeners who don't really understand it, whether they admit it or not, what is a you know vfx department head what 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 is yeah that? so it's funny uh the description i i was lied to uh by this movie called wag the dog uh i don't know if you ever saw this it's a fantastic movie i was going to school for political science in alaska which is you know the most useful degree you can possibly get and uh and i saw that movie and i was like wow visual effects man that's magic they just go into a room and they're all nonchalantly sitting there with their mugs of coffee and they're like eh, how about a how about a dinosaur how about a bag of chips how about a and it just happens and i was like this is amazing i need to i need to see that and so um it turned out uh, that's not how visual effects worked at all and i and i got snookered so um visual effects ironically was most accurately described to me by that woman who first told me about it at the front desk of that talent agency in Hollywood. She said, nobody knows what they do, but when they can't do it some other way, they dump it on visual effects. So basically visual effects is the by any means necessary department of filmmaking, which is, oh, that didn't work out. Okay, well, we'll figure it out for you. So it can be 
Uh, it can sometimes include special effects, which are practical things that you see in camera explosions, stunt rigs, things like that. Or it can be visual or digital effects, which are completely computer generated, you know, uh, phenomenon. And so a lot of times if you couldn't film it in the real world, uh, there you go. And as a matter of fact, maybe like, set, let me set up now in retrospect, after having sort of led and lost a career in that industry, let me set this up a little bit better. Traditionally, people made movies in the physical world. You go to a set, you create an illusion through the camera, and anybody can look through the camera and say, that's the movie we're making. And then post-production was where we edited and refined the story we were telling and added music and color. Uh, and then visual effects got added, and it became, you know, this, with the advent of digital, suddenly you were actually making two movies at the same time. There's the physical one everybody can see, and then there's the one that's going to manifest itself later in post-production through the addition of computer graphics. And over time, the filmmaking process has become actually very uh, bifurcated between the physical world and the digital world. And a lot of movies, unfortunately, have suffered the consequences of humans don't really live very well between the digital world and the physical world. And so ironically, you can summarize it by saying, uh, you know, when you're sitting at the intersection and somebody crosses the crosswalk in front of you and they're staring at their phone the whole time they're doing it, and you're like, look at that asshole. And that's basically the entire film business and every movie director, because you're in the physical world, man, and there's all kinds of stuff happening around you that could kill you. And you are stuck in your phone trying to figure out whatever it is that's going on in there. You're living two lives. And so Hollywood has been living two lives with this whole visual effects can do anything, but it'll take years or months in post-production when all the other creatives are sort of not always there. And then, you know, some people have to try and keep that glued together. So anyway, visual effects is the by any means necessary department for Hollywood. And, um, and unfortunately these days, it's also kind of become the lazy bucket for Hollywood, which is, uh, we didn't have time to have that conference call to figure that thing out. Just have visual effects whip up 50 different versions of it and we'll, shit on them until eventually time runs out and then we'll complain about how much we had to pay for it <laughs> i'm sure your least ex uh, favorite expression ben is um we'll fix it in post right that's probably the bane of your existence yeah yeah it's we we try to say now we'll fix that in prep and everybody kind of politely nods and smiles but the truth is is that uh post is a really hard place for a lot of people i mean you look at the movie credits and it's like it used to be that you know there was all the movie credits of everybody who worked on the movie. And then there was like a small team of visual effects people. And now you look at the movie credits and there are more visual effects people than there are physical production people. And one day I was like, that's very interesting. So I actually sat down and based on all my years of experience on movie sets, I made an org chart for movies. And then I made an org chart for visual effects. And then I realized there are actually for every physical person on a physical production department, you know, costumer, plasterer, you just name it, you know, second AC, there is the equivalent role in visual effects. It might have a slightly different title, but it's the same responsibility. It's just one person, one group of people works in the physical world and one group of people works in the digital world. But all of those digital people just get lumped under the umbrella of that's a visual effects person. But when you really look at all the disciplines and skills, there are actually more. There are insanely detailed jobs in visual effects that are just like, holy crap, that's somebody's job. And it's like, yeah. And they work 120 hours a week, seven days a week. It's crazy. That's amazing. What yeah, do you so think this? Go ahead. Go ahead sorry. I, you know, I was in anime. I'm in animation and I'm feature what you're talking about is true, right? There's the sim and cloth person, which is costume yeah. and hair, you know, it's all very detailed. It's, it's almost one-to-one. -one. Yep. And um, 
So what is the, how are those two departments linked, VFX and animation, those two professions, do you think? Like, I know you must work with animators. And oh, yeah, very often. layout yeah. artists and character designers or, you know, like all that kind of stuff. Well, first I would, I would separate the two different styles of filmmaking and say um, animated movies are different than live action movies. And unless it's Marvel, in which case Marvel makes Marvel makes live action movies like their animated movies. But if you work on these two worlds, you kind of realize, huh, the methodology for making these movies are very different. And you think that they're very similar because they have made the same roles and little of that, but they're actually very different methodologies. In animation, you start with a blank slate and then you successively take, uh, you add resolution to the vision, you know? Okay, we're gonna have our pencils, we're gonna have our scribbles, we're gonna have our previses, we're gonna have our gray shaded blocking versions. Okay, we're gonna refine those. We've got our on tens animation. No, now we have our detailed, you know, fully splined stuff. And then you just slowly add more, more to the movie. In many cases, live action, let's just say we get a script and then we go and try and discover or create these things in the physical world and capture them through the camera and then go assemble them all in post-production later. And there's a lot of resistance to going back to production and filling in gaps or things that could have been better. And then it's just a lot more noisy and messy, whereas it's a little bit more of a cleaner journey of progression in an animated style. And so I've actually found that, you know, there can actually be very different um, styles of animation for animators uh, between live action and and um, and animated films, but I would say that they're very different methodologies. And in fact, I worked on this film, The Lion King, which was um, sort of you know struggled with audiences to understand that we were making what is effectively a completely animated movie, but it was supposed to feel like a live action movie, and we didn't, John felt very strongly that we couldn't create a movie that felt like a live action movie if we were making it like an animated movie. So the challenge put to us to solve on that particular project was, how do we make an animated movie like a live action movie? And it was like, well, let's just start with, if a movie was to be completely live action and you were shooting it with animals, how would you do it? And it was like, well, it's impossible. You can't tell animals to talk and you can't, they'll eat all the film crew. I mean, like, what, what are you gonna do? And we were like, here's where technology comes in. What if we put you in virtual reality and we made all the animals and environments and the film equipment and all that kind of stuff. And then we matched the technology between the physical world and we unite physical and digital so that they act as one. Then could you film a completely animated movie as though it was a live action movie? And that's effectively what The Lion King was, was an experiment to say, can you make a live action, can you make an animated movie using completely live action techniques? And um, and so there were and there was an immense amount of like phenomenal animators on that project who worked just like they would on as you said a Pixar movie to create the animal the performance of the animals and all that kind of stuff, but the cinematography crew and the directing team and all that kind of stuff always approached each scene as though they were putting on a virtual reality he headset being transported to Africa and then capturing what was happening in front of them uh, with that technique. So interesting experiment. But um, yeah, uh, that's, so yes. yeah, that's super. That's super um, clear and very interesting. So, if for our writer, for our screenwriters uh, listening, if they want to write films that are very VFX driven, different worlds, mm. many reasons. 
what from your perspective are kind of the pitfalls or the considerations they should really have about doing that as they create, as they start to create it? Well, I'd make a couple of observations. Um, there are spectacle movies and then there are sort of, you know, stories. <laughs> it's not fair to say that a spectacle movie doesn't deserve to be considered as a movie or, and uh, because it doesn't necessarily focus on the story, but sometimes people are saying, paying the money to see the spectacle of it all. You know, like, it's like the, it's like if movies are generally evolved from the classic circus and the freak show, then yeah, there are some things that are for spectacle and then there are some things that are for story. And, and so I think that visual effects went through an era of being treated like spectacle. And, and so it also went through an era of being treated like a utility, like, hey, we need visual effects so that we can tell this story, which is not about visual effects. It's very problematic for people in the visual effects industry because when you go to the Oscars and you're trying to nominate pictures, you end up with like everybody going, well, look at these really big visual effects movies. They're not necessarily, you know, tear jerkers or taking people on an emotional journey of, of experience and, and empathy, but it's like, you really got to uh, applaud the achievement of thousands and thousands of people trying to create whatever that was that we've never seen before. So if I was to break things up into those different categories, I would say, um, my particular style, and that's not the same for everybody, would be to say visual effects should be invisible. They are not the point of the story because they're not really what people are there to see. The people are there to empathize with a protagonist on a journey of discovery. And we're effectively there to transmit human experience from one person to another. And although visual effects can be used to take you someplace that you've never seen or gone before, it's, yeah, it's not usually enough just to see it, there has to be meaning and purpose behind it. So towards writers, I would say, if you're not making a spectacle out of the visual effects, which I would encourage you not to, then uh, just remember that by default, visual effects will fail. Visual effects are very hard to do and producers love to cut the budgets for them. And there are no visual effects we can't do. It doesn't matter what it is, I don't care what it is. There's no visual effect we can't do now. Technology exists, the artistry exists, the, mature, the art form is so mature, we can do anything but it's very expensive. There's thousands of artists and people love to cut budgets. So assume by default that whatever you write onto that page uh, is going to be underfunded and is at, is at serious risk of looking like garbage. So when you're writing visual effects, ask yourself, is this important to advance the story? What do I want the audience to feel and what must be seen in order to convey this emotion? unless you acknowledge that as a writer, you're writing a spectacle film and you need to throw some of that in there from time to time, then just be clear about it and, and make it easy for people. But um, I love yeah, that. It's... I love that from a writing perspective. Some, you know, we, and this is a little more old school, you know, we used to think of them as set pieces, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, certainly I always try to approach a set piece as it's really the kind of metaphor for the internal experience of the character, right? It's, it might be, externalizing as this crazy monster or a battle in space but it, that is a metaphor for so do i know what's going on why this what this is a metaphor for and sometimes you know when you're writing you just write it and see what it is because you're the dreamer but at some point you go back and ask why does it need to be a battle what what is this monster what, what does that say about my main character so it's i love that you're also saying the same thing why is this here why do i emotionally need it for my character how's it advancing the story i think that's so spectacular that 
all along the pipeline. Those are the questions that are being asked people. So you think it's just you, the writer, visual effects post, they're asking the same questions. It's um, so expensive. It's so expensive and it's so, I mean, look, uh, thousands of artists are like, you know, not seeing their children grow up because they're trying to create these things. It is so hard and it requires so many people that it's an immense investment. And the visual effects artists, while they're working on it, they don't even get to see the whole context of the story or the picture, understand the value of what they're doing. And nothing is more depressing than spending three years working on a movie that you've basically viewed through a microscope. And then you go to the theater and you're like, well, that's a steaming pile of shit. I can't believe I just wasted uh, that much time on that thing. Uh, so uh, it, it happens. I mean, it just it happens all the time. And you're just kind of like, well, all right, you know, next time I'll try to make better decisions in life. But the important mm -hmm. thing I think if, is to focus on uh, don't put it on the page unless it's important to the story because someone is going to have to go make that happen and there ain't a button for that. It's it's going to be handcrafted love and it's going to be the most difficult thing that you that you can possibly and put in the script. And for them to do so, it well, they need to know why it's in the story and emotionally what are they trying to go for and what is this? I mean, all of the questions that we've asked at the very beginning are being asked now. I've been brought onto movies in post where they said, well, we're in post and uh, we're doing the the the, the visual effects and uh, nobody cares about the main character. <laughs> you can't well, touch and, anything in, in, in VA, you can't touch any of the visual effects scenes, but around them, can you make us care about the main character? And it's like, almost like it got overwhelmed by the spectacle and they, and they lost it just in the translation of it. They lost the main character. It, for me, it becomes like a party game. Like you have two yeah. and a half scenes to fix it. Um, but it, it happens, it can happen. Yeah, and there's visual effects shots that I've had teams of people, 20, 30 people work on for a year and a half. Can you imagine working on one shot for a year and a half in a movie? And and it's a shot where you're just like, I know the writer was like, oh yeah, yeah I wanna get to the good stuff. So it was, and then we get to the good stuff. It's like, well, the good stuff is the dialogue that you took so much pride in. The intro that you set up that canvas with is something that 30 people worked on for a year and a half and, and, and you know nearly died to create. And part of the struggle for us is what, the reason why we have to make many versions of a shot is when a director is trying to find a way to connect this thing with that thing and make it have meaning. And then you're just like, well, we're doing so many versions of this thing because it really shouldn't exist in the first place or because it's not tightly integrated into what audiences care about. And so we're sitting here trying to make something work that just it either shouldn't have existed or, or it just wasn't quite well thought out enough to be integral to the story. And I'll tell you this. Yes, yes. Uh, we end up, the, the director goes, I don't know what's wrong with this shot. So then they start focusing on quality because that's the logical part of their brain. They can just, anybody can look at that and say, well, maybe that lens flare should be more red and less blue. Or maybe that mountain should be taller and not, and it's just, now they're hunting. Now they don't know why it's not working. They're trying to hunt. And we're like, hey, when a movie is resonating emotionally with the audience and the visual effects are part of the story, they could look like cartoon drawings that your kid did on the fucking fridge. And the audience would love them and they would work great because the story was great and they were necessary. When they don't, then everybody goes in there and they start using this term that I will, it's very offensive, but I'm going to use it, pixel fucking. Where I was just going to say people, that. I was just going to say that. There, they, we sit there in the screening room and they take out their laser pointers and they're like, on frame 249 in the lower left-hand quadrant of the corner, underneath the motion blur of the thing, there's an overbright value that's gone slightly green. And you're just like, there's 30 people in this room. No wonder the movie is over budget. Like we're, this is what we're doing. The story has a problem. It's not the visual effect. It's not true. Sometimes I literally, I literally just had this conversation on a, on a project. And I was like, you know, 
it's too hard to write. It's just way too fucking hard. It doesn't work. It, it shouldn't be this hard to write this scene. Something yeah. is off. We have to stop. It doesn't work. And it's you. there's a certain amount of bravery to be the one who raises your hand and was like, it shouldn't, it shouldn't be this hard to link this up. There's something yeah. down the track that doesn't work or this whole scene doesn't work. And, but that is the artistry to me and the, and the storytelling craft. I really want to have time to get to your metaversal storytelling and your production company. So I'm going to shift the gears here. Um, tell us about your company. Where do you see storytelling going? Um, I, you know, sure. I'm going to look at it as a great thing, like a new way to tell stories. There's going to be new jobs. Yes. New, like, let's not like be afraid of this. Let's, as writers. No, it's good. you're going to love it. it. This is going to be very important and exciting. Okay. So uh, in the movie business, we were very fortunate. As you said, we won awards and we worked with all the toughest directors on the hardest things. We were really interested in solving problems and, and, and we had a great time. And then at a certain point, we discovered, shit, all the problems have been solved. The only problems that are left are bad planning or make it cheaper. You know, like we're here to fix somebody else's inability to, you know, uh, be a responsible planner. Or we're here to try to save somebody money, but we don't get any of that money, so fuck them. So uh, again, non-union. So there's no residuals for anybody in visual effects. Point is that um, we went, uh, I had a kid and I was watching the kid on the couch and I was trying to show the kid, hey, look at the movies. And they were just like, eh, eh I'd rather play with you know the interactive stuff. And it was like, hmm. And so after a while of doing that, I realized like, uh, I'm starting to feel like the next generation, and also I myself kind of had this existential crisis where I was like, you know, I know what it was like to be on the set of that movie. And it was amazing and it was beautiful. And you could look over there and you could look over here and you could go there and you could see this. And there were so many stories that weren't told. And I saw the director's final vision and I'm like, but there were so many great scenes and there were so many other opportunities and so many great places. And then you start thinking like, what if we put the audience inside the movie and we let go a little bit? as storytellers and we just created an opportunity in a world for other people to discover their own stories and you put enough meat on the bones for them to go hey it's interesting over here and it's interesting over there and then what would what would come out of that idea so very simple notion what would happen if we put the audience inside the movie and we took our hands off the wheel for a little bit and so we started a company based on that idea and now we've been running for almost a decade and doing hundreds of experiments and tests. And it's really complicated because there's, when you just think about something that simple, there's a lot of hard problems you have to solve. Like if you're going to do that, movies effectively have to be interactive and they have to be open world and they have to be like the real world, but they still have to be rich in story and substance and material. And so we've done hundreds of experiments and hundreds of prototypes and a lot of things. As a matter of fact, we did a Pixar um, we actually managed to convince Pixar to let us do this. And at first it was so funny because bless their hearts, you know, the greatest storytellers in the world. And they were like, we don't approve this. It's not possible. And also there's no story. And we were like, yeah, but there doesn't actually need to be a story. And they were like, now you're, now this is sacrilege. And, and so we were like, no, seriously, if you just put the people in the movie and let them make up their own fun, that will be fun by itself. And I think you'll be surprised by that. And so we we created Coco, uh, a VR experience where there really wasn't a story. There really, I mean, there's a story of Coco, but we didn't try to advance that narrative. You didn't have to follow any characters. You didn't have to like overcome any hurdles. There was nothing at stake. You just went in there and had fun and, and you took your friends in. 
and whatever you wanted to do was what you were doing in this world. You just were there. And so, and they were like, this is a terrible idea. And it's also not going to hold up at that quality level, but you know, we put a lot of really smart people on it. And, and then, and then it turned out that like kids loved it. They were having a great time. And what were they doing? Throwing paper airplanes, playing cornhole, playing with sparklers, doing nothing, but hanging out with each other. And we added a couple of really basic little simple things. Like the most storytelling we did was uh, you could grab your friend's skull because you you became skeletons, like, like it's in the diegesis of the film. And you could grab your friend's skull and take it off and then throw it. And it, people like had insane amounts of fun stealing each other's heads and throwing them around and then having to go pick them up. And anyway, the point was people got to be inside that world and they would come out, they'd cry, they'd go in there for like hours. It was insane. Point is, is that that was just the beginning of this idea that has now kind of get, gotten um, called metaverse, which is this, okay, we're going to take the physical world that we know, limited by the laws of physics, and we're going to overcome those. We're going to take the digital world we know, and we're going to and we're going to connect it to the physical world so that you can imagine, and it's not here yet, but very soon there's a day coming where you can have glasses or other things that will put digital content on top of the physical world and give you anywhere in a spectrum between those two things. So you can turn up the knob and go full digital, or you can turn down the knob and go full physical. And you can just, if you're full physical, you can just use audio or context awareness or whatever. And if you're full virtual, then yeah, you're in virtual reality and you can teleport, you can fly, and you can go to other planets. And if you're just going through your everyday life, you know, you're on your way to work or whatever, it's just like a heads up display on a car, except on your everyday life. And then some, because the quality will get so good that you almost can't tell the difference between what's real and what's not. So ironically, because we were visual effects people, that was our job, connect the physical world with digital stuff and make them indistinguishable. So now we're trying to do that, but make them interactive so that people can say, all right, let's start throwing a little bit of artificial intelligence in there so that characters can have conversations with the audience so that we can, as, as creators, and I'll say writers, put story elements into this world and give audiences the freedom. We're going to have to put a lot of our, our, our control away on a shelf for a second give audiences the freedom to be as important as the director or the cinematographer or the editor or whatever, because they are all of those roles at the same time. And then basically this metaverse thing, it just becomes like everyday life. And so there's a lot of implications there. You know, we no longer write scripts that start at the beginning and end at the end, and they go from the top of the page to the bottom. Really what you end up with is a bunch of index cards of information connected by red pieces of yarn that map out across a spatial world and across people and time and places. And then you just have to be aware that just like in the real world, people are gonna experience that story non-linearly with infinite entry and exit points. And uh, it's not as simple as like the branching narrative that you see in the Black Mirror, you know, Bandersnatch example. It's uh, much more complex and rich than that. And so it's, uh, it's cool. It changes the relationship between the audience and storytellers. As a matter of fact, if anything, it kind of makes storytelling, uh, I don't want to say obsolete, but in storytelling, you're sitting there and I'm telling you a story. It's not usually bi-directional. But when it's suddenly bi-directional and the audience has the ability to control what parts of their story they're experiencing when, 
And if I'm telling a story and it's like, oh, well, the audience isn't really interested in the action parts of the story. They're interested in the romance parts of this story. So then they focus on those parts. And then when I talk to a different audience, oh, these, these people are interested more in the action stuff. So that's the same story, but more focus on those elements. It's so I it's have like so many questions. I just have to jump in. I have so many questions. Okay. Time's so, up. Sorry, that's it. No, no. I have so many questions. I want to dig deeper. Go, go, go. So, Let's do it. Um, wouldn't, oh, sorry. Just popped my ear, earphones off. Okay, so wouldn't that's how powerful the idea is. That's right. Do we still you still need writers though to create this? Um it's just of course, how, absolutely a thousand percent. How the story you need more writers. Told. You actually need more writers, not less. Oh, like, yeah, I, need, what I'm imagining, what I'm imagining is I'm in the VR and my son has gone off to watch follow the action hero and my husband's following the romantic lead, and I'm like, well, what is that fucking dog doing? I want to follow the dog and the dog goes yeah. down an alley yeah. and we might all meet up at some point as our stories cross. Yeah. Yeah. And then later you're going to tell me, no, 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 he was there because of this. And my son's going to tell me, it. no, that I went on this rocket ship and I watched all of you from above. That's right. Like, that's very exciting to me because it's just, it's branching narrative, but on a chessboard seven it's dimension a mesh. mesh. Yeah. Okay. So that's that that my brain could help. But you're still at the bottom of that going to have to have a a tone and a thematic, yep. like a subtextual There's thing, a like global arc. What this is and why we're telling it so that it's a deeper soulful experience because otherwise it is just spectacle. It is going to be facile. I, I would think that to me, what I love about storytelling is that cathartic experience that you can have as joy realizes no sadness connects us and we're talking to children and old people and every human on the planet to accept their sadness because there's great wisdom in it. Like that to me, and, and with lots of spectacle and lots of fun, by the way, which we all want to have, like that still has to be there in this mesh, right? Yeah, absolutely. Otherwise, why why aren't you just, you know, at home washing dishes? Like the really it's the point of saying you know i talk about the spectrum between physical and digital you can think of the same spectrum between fiction and reality you know people live reality you don't have to sell them that uh if it's if it's a reality they're not living then you could call it journalism but if you start to add magic and fantasy and and things that people haven't explored that kind of expand their human experience because again storytelling is just about transmitting human experience from one human to another period full stop nothing more if you put that spectrum together and you say, this is now a much larger canvas that uh, is much more complex, but also much more rich and much more meaningful. And it actually brings people together. One of the great things about Pixar movies is that they have found that generally speaking, that magical line where kids have something that they like and adults have enough appreciation. So you're not like, oh God, I have to sit through the freaking Teletubbies again. It's like, no, there's something for everyone in there really hard to do but you could do that in so many more dimensions when the audience has the ability to say hey dad you go do that thing and yeah, i'm going to so go this way with specificity, my friends right it's and, almost yeah. like a it's like a video game uh tv yeah. show movie and you're going to need a showrunner i mean creatively you are going to have to have a showrunner who has a vision and is keeping those 50 writers who are all writing Right? Am I wrong? Yeah. Am I right? No, you're 100 percent right. And actually, think about it like this: you're I, a lot of people talk about, oh, we're world building. Yeah, no, you're world building, but you're world building 
to fit into a movie timeline or your world building to fit into episodic television. But you're not world building and then going, huh, here's a good story. Let's pull that out and put that in a TV series. Hey, here's another good story. This should be a comic book. Hey, here's another good story. We'll just do this as a character's like virtual existence in TikTok videos. And so this idea, by the way, you mentioned virtual reality. And I'm actually, virtual reality is one of the things you could do. But the point, the principle behind metaverse is that it's all of those things connected. So you watch it on television, you play it in a little interactive mobile game, you put it on a VR headset, different perspectives to different parts of the story, or just different ways to access the same types of content. But you can, you know, the best experiences are like, oh, my daughter's playing it on her mobile phone, but her friend has a VR headset. And this person over here is in a location-based sort of theme park experience, but they're all connected and part of the same world of, of narrative and story. So it's more than just a device or a thing. It's, um, it's basically trying to make the world of fantasy emulate the world of reality across all the ways we experience reality. Yeah, just so based fair. on how much time my daughter spends building houses and washing rats and Roblox. I mean, I, I it's mind numbing to me because there's no story, right. but she loves it. And, but if there was a story, she'd love it even more, you know, yeah. and, and she wants me to share in the Roblox. And I'm like, oh God, no, I can't look at one more house you've built. It's, it's you know, painful. Like, I want to share whatever she's into with her. And this feels like an opportunity to do that. Well, kids play make-believe. And so if you listen to sometimes your kids just in there like collecting, and unfortunately this is, you got to watch out because this is like unfettered capitalism, just assaulting our children. And I really, you got to keep a close eye on it or they're all going to be just, you know, uh, uh, embryonic sacks getting milked for electricity in the future. But um, the- Oh my God, the, that sounds the, like so charming. What a great description. Yeah, it's the name <laughs> of my new band. Um <laughs> But I mean, seriously, you, you, you do have to watch out because one of the risks with metaverse is that it's so connected to human physiology in a way that humans have been desperate for so long because humans don't react well to two-dimensional information like movies, I hate to say it to you, but um, books and words on a page, that's not a natural way humans process information. We're spatial creatures, you know? That's why, that's why people have had so many problems with the pandemic because we're all in little boxes on video screens and our brains are just, you know, getting lethargic because we lack that spatial context and sight and smell and taste and all that stuff. Anyway, the point is, is that in this metaverse construct, you've got so much information that is available to kids, but the experience is garbage. So it's experience poor, information rich. When we were kids, it was experience rich, information poor. And it just went whoop like this. And now people, we weren't even, a, you know, we've adapted to one for hundreds of thousands of years, depending on your point of view. The other one, uh, we're not ready for at all. Like human evolution and biology doesn't react in 30 years. And that's how long we've had computers, 50 or whatever. But anyway, point is, is that, um, is that if you're trying to get an idea of what this actually means and you want to experience a really good job of this kind of storytelling and this kind of writing, because it's not prescriptive, it, it, it's, there's all these different characteristics to it, I would strongly advise whether you like gaming or not, is to find a way to play the game Red Dead Redemption 2. Because there's a very interesting and magical thing that happens in that game, and they did a phenomenal job of it. And if you have the money, it's almost worth buying a console just to play this game. 
and, and I'm going to brief you right now. Chapter one, game is broken up into chapters like any good book. Chapter one is a traditional game, very linear storytelling. You're going to play through this narrative. You're going to meet some characters. You're going to overcome some adversity. You're going to get to a place. Chapter one is really designed to say, here are the characters. This is the story foundation. And here's how you use the controls on the joysticks and stuff. Get over that hurdle because it's about to get worth it. I know that not everybody is, knows how to use joysticks and stuff, but get over it. Chapter one is to get past that. Chapter two, they say, okay, now the story is going to continue, but you don't have to follow the story that we've written for you if you don't want to, because now the world is open to you and you can just go explore and do whatever you want. We're in the Wild West. We're approximately in the mid 1800s. And we have a, a version that's like hundreds of miles of any direction, but kind of condensed of what America was like at that time period. So if you want to go to the New Orleans area, you can travel your way down there. You can take trains. You can get a horse. You can ride. And there's a million different ways. You want to just meet people and get to know all the stories and who these people are and how they're related to each other. There's a backstory for everything. If you just want to wander around in the woods in the far west, you might discover like UFO crash sites or ancient Viking ruins and like their stories behind all these objects. If you happen to find a lake and there's a fishing rod leaning up against a tree, you can learn how to use the fishing rod and you can learn how to fish. Next thing you know, you'll realize there's hundreds of different kinds of fish that require different expertise and different bait. And now you've learned this whole mechanic around how to fish or hunt or trap or you know, there will be mysteries that you'll encounter. And it's all just like in the real world, up to you to decide what you want to do and where you want to go next. Nobody's telling you you got to do anything. So it's almost like environmental storytelling. Every object and everything has a purpose and has a backstory and there is meaning and it is connected to everything else. And then you start to discover these sort of principles of like, here's what, here's truly what next generation storytelling is like. And it's more like story discovering and uh, and it's an immense, and then you start to look at the number of writers that are involved and how long it takes to create a world like that. And I found it so much more interesting than any movie I've ever seen. And I'm not really a gamer, but I was like, this is the best movie I've ever seen in my life because anyone who plays it has something that they can talk about with their friends that is a different perspective and a different thing. And that's kind of what we're talking about in the context of it doesn't have to just be on a gaming console or a PlayStation or an Xbox. It can be on your mobile phone. It can be on television. It can be on the internet. It can be, you know, in virtual reality. It's all those things. Tell me again, the name of the game, just for anybody who missed it. Red Dead Redemption 2. Redemption 2. And um, if for our listeners who are getting excited and would like to either prepare to be this kind of writer or, you know, what, what, what are the paths that are opening up for what kind of samples do they need? Where do they go? Like watching this game is a great first step to see if they like it, but like, what's, what is the future for writers? What can they do? It's an emerging uh, industry. And that's the best part about it is that, you know, how it is, it's like where there's chaos, there's opportunity, which by the way, is something that uh, that gentleman, Bob Coleman, who became my agent in Hollywood, that's the first thing that he said. He's like, where there's chaos, there's opportunity. So if you want, you can go where there's chaos and you'll do pretty well. And that's kind of what's happening now is that filmmaking is very mature. Television is very mature. It's evolving, but it's not radically changing. 
it's pretty much a, a very well-known thing. And now everyone's kind of racking their brains. How do I create a new story that still is going to get shoveled into the hero's journey in 120 pages of script, you know, with all of the stuff we have to, boxes we have to check. This is, this is the Wild West. There's no rules. People aren't really sure what to do, uh, but people are hungry for it. There are um, opportunities in the gaming industry, but then there are a lot of people, businesses, and even to some extent studios who are like, okay, we need to get into this metaverse. We don't like the word metaverse because it's very dystopian and all this negative connotations, but people are starting to get very interested in that. And the opportunities kind of need to be created. You're not going to find job postings for them, but it may be that you're going to start to experience job postings for them in a wave in the coming, you know, I'd call it one to five years in increasing amounts. You're going to start to see people desperate for someone who, you know, can help them create a story that is non-linear, that is universal and works across all these different touch points and doesn't just fit into the rectangle. So I think right now is the time to do your homework. Yeah, if you were do your homework, learn about this stuff, play the games and the the game you suggested. If you were going to um, put a team together of writers tomorrow, because you're going to do this, you've gotten the money, you're going to build one of these. What kind of sample are you? Does it matter? TV, film? Do you have to have written for video games? You know, what kind of samples are you going to need? Are you obviously for you, a showrunner? The big writers are going to be people that uh, have track record, but you're going to have to fill sure. in. Yeah, well, I would actually look to say like not does this writer write great movie scripts but does this writer create great characters and do they come up with great plot lines and can they are their minds open enough to think non-linearly like this is the hardest part is understanding that audiences are not going to go from a to b to c to d every time in the last 10 years we've had writers work with us on projects that come from linear media, they struggle to understand how to write for an audience that suddenly goes, this is more interesting, I'm going that way. And then they're like, but but I wanted you over here. And audiences are like, yeah, but I, I just wasn't interested in where you were going there, but I thought this character was really nice and I wanna follow them over there. So I would say you're looking for writers that have a really open mind, aren't entrenched in, in trying to like, you know, check all those boxes, but are really good at doing character development and, and overall plot lines. And then explore the way that people consume. It, it, it has a lot to do with being sensitive to what the audience is doing for a change and what they seem to be interested in. Because a lot of times I feel like sometimes writers that are very famous and successful go, it's all about me. I have this story I want to tell. Here's what I see. Here's how I want to do this. And you're like, at no point did I ever hear you really give a shit about the audience. And in this new world, it's only about them because otherwise you're, you're talking to yourself in an empty room. And so uh, those are the characteristics that I would look for. And um, in terms of samples and precedent work, those are just the things that I would look is like, oh, did you, did you create a character that everybody loved? Because now you're gonna be responsible for carrying forward the relationship between all of the world and that character. So, you know, go deep because it's not just 90 minutes. It's a lot more than that. It's every day for every waking hour it's exciting super very terrifying and exciting <laughs> terrifying and exciting i've written for vr and it's actually really interesting 
um, because one of the pieces was, do you wanna go track A, B or C, but then mm. making sure that they're connected so that yeah. when you go to B, you can remember the details from track A that fill in B. So that by the time you get to C, it's a whole story and, and different endings. It was really, it was an interesting experiment um, just to get yeah. my brain to work in those different pathways. Um, like I couldn't control where the audience would go. So I had to make sure that they had enough information in each track uh, to get a full experience if they watched just one of them or all of them or only two. Yeah. So it it's was, good practice it fun. because it, it's good practice, but I, interestingly, I still think of it as linear storytelling because typically you're starting here and you're ending there. And there may be five different yeah. endings depending on how many branches you have, but you're still thinking about it linearly. Sometimes, just like the movie Memento goes backwards, sometimes the audience is, is zigzagging back and forth because that's where they're interested and where they want to go. And sometimes they came in at the middle of the story and they went this way and then they went that way. And, and that, that sort of mesh idea of the story flowing like water, it's good to sort of practice on branching narrative. And also, by the way, you kind of understand suddenly the complexities of the economics of this. Because as a writer, if you, if you think about a branching narrative, like use Bandersnatch as an example, that TV show, uh, like a choose your own adventure. How many segments of time are you writing and then at every point that you give the audience a choice, you add, you know, X number of new segments. And then each segment has more segments and more segments and more segments. And then you go, okay, so for the audience to go through here, let's just say that it was a really great story, 90 minutes. Well, you don't know how many pages that is. But if there were five different outcomes and there were at least five different places where they could have done that, then you just surpassed Lord of the Rings in terms of how much writing you have to do to provide that many choice opportunities to it. And that's why to a certain extent, it's like, okay, that's really, really hard. And that's why you don't see that a lot because it's very expensive. And then, you know, producing and shooting and visual effects and all that crap, it's like, no one wants to do that. It's too much of a commitment. But with real-time game engines, with artificial intelligence, and with a whole lot of new techniques at your disposal, that's why I said at the beginning, I think you think about it more like an index card of information that has a piece of red string that connects to another index card of piece of information. And then you build a mesh of all of that stuff together. And then you just let people go explore that world. And um, it's different than branching narrative, but branching narrative is a good, is a good exercise, I think, to warm up you, on. And when you talk about AI, I just um, did an interview with some guys who were um, experimenting with computers writing scripts. And um, so are you basically saying that you're inputting into a computer the story information, but the, the computer's actually writing it or? No, I, okay. I wouldn't. We're very far away from AI being capable of doing something like that. But in terms of content production, we are getting closer and closer with being able to say, hey, I need AI to generate the voice dialogue of what the writer has said so that I can have thousands and thousands of hours of compelling and natural speech to accompany this amount of creativity. Because if you look at the, you know, the budget, you can just Google it and then you can, you know, pick your job off the floor. If you look at the budget for Red Dead Redemption 2, um, it's, it's pretty shocking compared to a movie. But if you realize that it practically made all of its money back on the opening weekend, and the fact that the games industry is going up and the movie industry is kind of sometimes not, 
um, it gives you an indication of where people, where the audience and the public's interests are, but it's an immense amount of work. And so when I talk about AI, I'm talking more about the scalability of volume. Like how do we generate this much? Um, and we're not there with AI yet. We're not gonna be like, hey, AI, write me a story of, you know, uh, of young love. It's, it's not, it's not, it'll be entertaining, but it, it's not there. Um, but in those other aspects of how the audience needs to consume them, we're not going to have time to build a copy of the United States by planting every single individual tree. We're going to have to say, hey, computer, fill in this valley with a little bit of a waterfall and a little bit of a forest to make it look a little bit like Portland, but a little bit like Snohomish. And, and then it'll go, okay, here you go. And they go, okay, now I've, now that I'm 50% of the way there, I'm going to go art direct a few things by hand. More like I that. think in terms of genre, I'm also struggling because I think of video games in a certain way, right? Like like action, no offense to the female gamers, but mostly male-driven, male-made characters. Um, mm -hmm. I know that's changing, but so but what you're talking about is any genre, right? Like rom-com, mystery, sci-fi, western, uh, drama, I... comedy. Here's, here's an interesting example, and I'll use the film and television world um, to trigger this thought exercise. If you've seen season one, season two of Westworld, then it's a, then the show is kind of two, ha two hemispheres. The park, this recreational world of, you know, fantasy, and behind the scenes of the park, you know, the operations of the park. And the showrunners there and the writers have created a story that weaves back and forth between these two places. I'm going to set the behind the scenes apart for a second and just say, here's the park. Imagine that's the world that, that audiences can live in outside this window right here in the world that we all live in, where there are characters that they can talk to. And that's kind of what more what I meant by AI. We train those characters to have a certain set of knowledge and a certain understanding and to give responses to your conversations and your questions as an audience member that help you discover and uncover new things. Oh, you wanna be a gunslinger or you wanna go uh, you know, fall in love or you wanna just go explore the wild west and meet new peoples and new places. Like all of those opportunities are available for you in the story west world and all of those stories are explored. And then behind the scenes, what we're really talking about is becoming those people who create those characters and who fill them with those ideas and those storylines and those plots because the people that are shown in that TV show are literally what we're starting to do today in the real world around us. And so if you've seen that, that show and you've sort of studied how you know, Lisa Joy and Jonathan Nolan you know, what, what they put into it, it, it ironically is really sort of what we're talking about, but mm. hopefully with less, you know, murder and, and uh, violence. <laughs> all right. Well, I have a pitch for you. We're going to do all Jane Austen novels all together in one world. You get to travel all around the different worlds and interact with all the Jane Austen. That's my pitch. So. <laughs> People would never leave. They would never, never leave. leave. I would never leave. My generation would be lost in there. They would just go in, check out. <laughs> but that's effectively what your kids are doing in Roblox right now. It's like yeah. that's the Jane yeah. Austen of their of their generation. Yeah. And unfortunately, it's a little bit more consumerism and capitalism and, and, and consumption obsessed than than mm -hmm. I would particularly like as a parent. But that you're, you're not far off because that's basically what they're doing. Minecraft and other examples. And mm -hmm. candidly, they're really hungry 
for the kinds of things that we grew up with that are experience driven and story. And instead what they get is cognitive psychology and behavioral economics, which is, oh, humans like to collect things. Well, then let me introduce a couple of psychological warfare techniques that make you greedy about accumulating things and comparing yourself to your friends. I have this and you don't, and I went this place and I got that thing. And you're just like, uh, that's not very healthy um, because you just set up those rules and then you put children in there and then parents are too busy to pay attention to what's actually happening. It's like, can we do better than that, please? <laughs> so yes, writers, please. Yes, get yes, to the yes, task. Yes, we can. Yes, yes, please. All of it is so fascinating and exciting. And uh, yeah, yeah, my brain really, is going, like said, man. My it's brain is exciting going. and terrifying and I love it. I think it's really great. And before this call, I, I had no idea what any of this was. So thank you. Thank you very much for sort of reframing it in a way that, that I can understand as a, a story write. We're not going to use writer. I used to be a playwright. So, you know, and theater is yeah. a, a bit like this, right? You can't always control what's happening on stage. You can't always direct the audience's attention. You know, there's all different nights have different experiences depending yeah. on who the actors are, you know, so it's it's like a baby version of this, like the there's no beginning rules. version of. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it hasn't been written yet. It's whatever you decide. And, and there could be many different things just in the same way that the story can have a rom-com aspect to it or like an action, you know, warfare. Con all these things are possible. Nobody has any rules yet. It's whatever we decide to make it. Um, and if we decide not to do anything, then we're just going to, you know, uh, I think we should do something. <laughs> I think we should do something. Yeah, sounds good. That's I think exciting. part of me wants yeah. to say to you what, what you said to the agent, which is someday you're going to need a writer who does what, and I just think of me. <laughs> just think of me. Someday. <laughs> um, it's happening. So, okay, so... Um, we always ask each guest three questions at the end of the episode, and I would like mm. to ask them of you now. Um, so what brings you the most joy when it comes to your work? Mm. I love solving problems for people who deserve it. <laughs> I know that sounds like a really weird statement, but a lot That's of times brilliant. I solve problems for people who don't deserve it. And I and I can take satisfaction from solving a problem. And, and, I, and I can find that... In, I can find that internal joy, but man, there's nothing that makes me happier than somebody who is a good person and has a problem that I am equipped to help with. Nothing makes me happier than like those two ingredients. Cause it's like, oh, I just want to send that person back on their merry way, doing whatever important work they're doing because I was able to help contribute to solving some little problem Love that, that Love was that. easy for me well and hard for them. Love it. Yeah. All right, second question. What pisses you off about your work? Oh. Is it being wow. forced to solve problems for people that don't deserve it? Because I find that happens sometimes as a writer. I mean, that, that would be, the, that would be the, the very correct and almost lazy answer is like being forced to solve problems for people. But anything involving money, I gotta just be honest with you. Generally speaking, anything involving money kind of pisses me off because it, it just causes people to not think clearly about what's important in the world. And, and, um, and so generally I find that like whenever somebody introduces money into a particular equation, I get very impatient and frustrated. And, and I know that money is important. Obviously I, I, you know, I grew up in a log cabin in the woods, like not, you know, but, but 
interestingly, I think because of that, money wasn't really an important thing. It was like food and shelter and, and you know, friends. Anyway, my point is just, uh, yes. If I was gonna answer that question, I, I would probably say money, whatever it is, money. Go ahead, Jeff. Uh, that's very well said. Yeah, I think it's so often is it's the business that's kind of an assault to the art and it's inevitable, but I think that's really well said. Um, okay, the final question is, um, if you could be remembered for one contribution you've made to the business, um, it could be in your past work in VFX or what you're doing now, but in terms of your kind of your legacy, what would that be? Oh, it's a horrifying question. Uh, for some reason, uh, like I would try to do everything I could not to personally be remembered for anything because I one time had this epiphany moment where I was reading this uh, book and I'm not into religion. Uh, but I was reading this Eastern philosophy uh, book, Taoism, uh, and and uh, there was this quote in there, this one passage. I mean, most of it was incomprehensible to me, but this one thing really resonated. And and it might have actually been Sun Tzu. I can't even remember at this point whether it was Lao Tzu or Sun Tzu, but it it just like struck a chord with me. And and that was um, when uh, and I'm trying to translate the many different versions of this here, but when the master governs, the people hardly know he exists. Second best, when he is loved. Third, when he is uh, feared or respected, and least when he is um, uh, feared or despised. And so the point of the, the, of the greatest sort of leader is that no one ever knows that they ever existed because when their objectives are attained and the world is you know, made happy, the people will look to themselves and say, we did this. And that is the greatest possible outcome. And so candidly, my desire, and it, you gotta look this up, it's better, I'm not saying as good as it is, but I really felt empathy with this idea of becoming invisible and just, surrounding myself with really talented and really great people and just disappearing inside them. And so I have never thought, and it's, I, I, I come from a place of privilege now having won an Oscar because I don't have to think anymore. I can just say that when I die, they're probably going to say Oscar winner Ben died and it doesn't matter you know what happens from that point forward. So I'm definitely speaking from a place of privilege, but if I was to philosophically seek, you know, sort of like, position of enlightenment it would be invisibility in that regard um, no, it's but i great, it so applies to writers because if you could be not only content but search for that invisibility writing is a great place to go because you do literally become invisible uh often to the process and i like you so care about helping others and that deserve it that that can be its own reward. So I love that. It's very meaningful to me. What Not me. If I'm was... a total monster. It's all about my ego. <laughs> Everyone has to listen to exactly what I say. I'm a totalitarian leader. I'll crush all your spirits. The world needs them. Me. Otherwise, stories would be boring. If we didn't have people like that, all stories would have nothing at stake and we would all be bored. You know? um, I would say, though, if I, was, if I was going to contribute nameless and facelessly to something, it would be empowering the voice of the audience because I feel like I don't, I, I wasn't really um, happy once I kind of 
discovered that, oh, this is all of us speaking to the audience and, and not listening to the audience in return. And I would like to empower the people of the world to have a voice back so that it's a bi-directional conversation. And I think that that right now doesn't exist and that more and more the world is becoming a place where less and less voices are telling everybody what to do, which is ironic because things like Twitter and Instagram and TikTok and YouTube, and, and you would think that the public has more of a voice, but then when you look at it, you're just like, in this cacophony, is there really anything of substance happening? And how can we, how can we restore a little bit of balance to this? So, hmm. Thank you so we'll much, Ben. Uh, I really Thank loved you. having you here. My son is going to get Aww. props because he was right. Uh, you are Aww. amazing and um, mind-blowing in, in the best possible way to crack open my head of the potentiality and possibility in the chaos because I just saw chaos coming, honestly. Um, and now <laughs> I'm very excited about it. I'm very, very excited about it. And I'm excited for our listeners, both the pros and the emerging writers um, of the potentiality uh, for all of us to participate with you and people like you who are on the edge of this. So thank you so much for being here. Well, you have, you've all brought so much happiness to the people of Earth by giving us characters and stories that we could empathize with. And I look forward to seeing what you do when you're putting those stories and experiences directly in the hands of the people. And uh, I can't wait to see what you do with it. So, oh, so thanks for considering it. You guys, thanks so much to everyone for listening. If you haven't joined, we highly recommend our TSL Facebook group. It's a beautiful place to meet other writers and find additional support outside of the show. And remember, you are not alone and keep writing. Thanks for tuning in to the Screenwriting Life. We love our community and we want to get to know you even better. Join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash thescreenwritinglife or email us at thescreenwritinglife at gmail.com to have your question considered for the show. You can also suggest topics by emailing us there. Also, we'd love for you to drop us a review on Apple Podcasts. Even if we don't read your review on air, trust me, we have read it. And not only does it mean the world to us, but it helps other people find the show. We've always been driven by mission and mentorship, and reviewing our show helps expand that mission. And of course, until next Sunday, happy writing.